This morning we're in Hosea chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Well, church, this morning, I hope that you do have your Bibles open to Hosea. Uh, It's a bit odd to say a different book than the Gospel of Mark. I almost said Gospel of Mark this morning, but we are somewhere else in the Scriptures, Uh, the book of Hosea. And yet, uh, now that you're there, I hope, uh, maybe it took you this long to get there. It's not a place that we typically turn to, right? Um, I would ask you to turn to another place in your Bible with your fingers still there in Moses. Go over to the table of contents. And you're like, I just came from there. How do you think I found Hosea? Uh, I want you to go over to the table of contents for a second, okay? And uh, as you go over to the table of contents, there's a few things I want you to observe. Um, While you're going there, uh, we do have some scripture journals, uh, and we have some extras at the back here. If you didn't get one and you would make use of one, uh, put your hand up, and these guys will bring uh, around a journal to you. Just put your hand up, and uh, we'll bring them around, see a number of hands. So uh, please just let them know, and we'll get them to you. So now that you're at your table of contents in your Bible, first of all, let me just say, never be afraid of that. It's a help. It's there for a reason. I know I have one, uh, and I make use of it. Uh, There are a number of ways the books of the Bible have been grouped together throughout history. In our English Bibles, the last 19 books of the Old Testament are known as the prophets. And you can see them listed there, beginning at Isaiah and then on down. These prophets can be broken up into two groups. You have the major and the minor prophets. They're probably not indicated like that in your table of contents, though if they are, that's kind of cool. 
The major and minor prophets are not in reference to their importance, but rather to their length primarily. The major prophets, you can see them in your table of contents, are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. The minor prophets are the next 12, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. These are increasingly popular names I'm observing uh, in a a number of of groups in our culture. Uh, I haven't met a Haggai yet, and I'm not even positive I'm saying it right. So if I ever do, they can correct me. Uh, It's these last 12 prophets that we just listed that we're studying in this series together. For much of history, these 12 prophets were collected into one Jewish scroll known as the Book of 12. And this is where this series gets its name. So you can go and turn on back to Hosea now that you kind of see where we are in the Bible. I just find it helpful. Context is helpful, friends. Don't be afraid to use your table of contents to give you a little context. The purpose of the prophets. Uh, God gives the prophets to the people of God, first of all, to speak God's words. God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he says this, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who has made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will speak with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. The Lord gives words, he gives voice to his prophet. So the Lord provides through the prophets throughout all of history. When the prophets spoke, they spoke with the authority of the Lord himself. Well, what is it that they spoke? Well, very often, as we'll see in our time, it's a recurring theme in all of the 12 minor prophets. In this book of 12, we'll see that they speak a call to repentance. Micah 3 8 says this, but as for me, I'm filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. What's he speaking? He's calling them out for where they are. And in calling them out, he's calling them to repentance and faith. What's the basis, the ground upon which the prophets call the people to repent? What standard had been forgotten? What relationship had they failed to keep that they're failing in this way, that they're transgressing, that they're sinning? And that really brings us to the third. And I think one of the most important things that we could say about the prophets, that the business of the prophets is to call the people to remember God's covenant. As is almost always the case. When a messenger from God speaks, they're not speaking something new. So very often what they're speaking is that we are to remember basic, ancient, fundamental things about our God and our relationship with him. In this case, the prophets are reminding the people about God's covenant. Now, I would encourage you, if you're taking notes somewhere about this series, to to jot down Deuteronomy chapter 28 through 30. Deuteronomy chapter 28 through 30 is a crucial, vital to understanding God's covenant relationship with his people. And it it follows this pattern, the pattern of blessings, curses, and redemption. Blessings, curses, and redemption. Listen to the Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 1. If you faithfully obey the voice of God 
Being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. The Lord gives the people access to his blessings by their following of his ways. Okay? So you can hear the blessing there. Now listen to something very similar to it in verse 15 of chapter 28. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Now, what's interesting to me, if you look at this passage between Deuteronomy 28 to 30, the majority of it's curses. Why? Well, they walked in the blessings of God for like two seconds, right? Uh, We only need a few verses to explain that. But they walk under his judgment as they wander off and transgress against the covenant throughout really the the whole story. He warns them of the curse of turning aside from his way. So at this point, it sounds like whether they receive blessing or curse in the covenant relationship is pretty much up to how the people behave. Doesn't it seem like that? If you do good things, you get good things. You do bad things, you get bad things. But don't miss these words from Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 1 through 3. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, the Lord, even when he was entering into his covenant, as he's pronouncing the blessing and the curse, when he's entering into it, he knew that these are a people who would turn away from him. Right up front, There's no question in God's mind like, hmm, I wonder how they'll obey. I wonder how this covenant relationship will work out. No, at the front, he knows exactly who this people are that he's making this covenant relationship with. So it doesn't depend on how they behave. He's entering into it knowing how they'll behave. They're going to wander off and transgress. And he's going to bring blessing, yes, and curse. This sounds exactly like what happens with Hosea and Gomer. We heard just a a summary of the story in the reading of Hosea chapter 1. And then Deuteronomy 30 continues this way. Return to the Lord your God. Then the Lord will restore your fortunes and have mercy upon you. You see, the covenant of God with his people is not actually just a covenant of blessings and curses. It's actually from the start, because he knows exactly how it's going to happen. He says, if you wander off, then I suppose there's a redemption sort of plan B. No. He says, when you wander off after the other nations. Right here at the front of the covenant. When that happens, when you turn back to me, I will bless you and restore your fortunes. Crucial key to what the covenant is from the start is a covenant of redemption. The plan and purpose that the Lord has for his people is neither uninterrupted blessing or unending curse. Neither of those are actually his plan. His plan all along has been redemption. The purpose of the prophets is to remind the people of this covenant pattern, this covenant purpose, that when they're receiving blessing, it's actually not a the purpose of God, that they would know what it is to be redeemed and reconciled to him. When they experience curse, the point is not that they would be destroyed, but that they would turn and be reconciled to him. 
This is the purpose of God and his covenant. So why this series? Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. How has the Lord spoken? Yes, by his prophets and by his son. And we spent 61 weeks listening, and we have many, Lord willing, years to listen to the Lord speak. So much of the New Testament, though, even the voice of the Lord rests upon the revelation of the prophets who spoke beforehand, of which Jesus is the great fulfillment. So what I want to do in this series is I want to bring our church into a greater familiarity, not with the goal that in the next 12 weeks that we would somehow master or fully comprehend these prophets, but that perhaps we might not be so timid. Like, first of all, you know roughly where to turn now if you didn't before. Perhaps the more often that we approach these scriptures, we will begin to realize that these words belong to us. They're, they're ours to possess, to know and to understand, to take encouragement and warning from, so that through them we might know our Lord and learn his ways by repentance and faith. And I want to pray to that end. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would work the the pattern of your word in us. That we would see that you are good. You are the God who has created a people and given us a way to live. And in that way, there is great blessing. And that we are not good. We have wandered off. And in that way, there is great curse. And Lord, your plan, your purpose, from before the foundation of the earth has been redemption. Lord, I pray that you would work this purpose in the midst of this congregation, in individual hearts, and as a people together alongside the whole of your church, even this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Make yourself known to your people this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one note that we have is we have put together a study guide. Uh, The goal of the study guide is that as you're being brought into familiarity in our gathering that you can then go and and spend time in Hosea during the course of the following week. You can visit it by going to cpcoast.com slash book of 12. You can scan the link that's on the bookmark. You can grab the bookmark on your way out and uh, use that as a tool so that when we end our, uh, when we ended our study in the gospel of Mark, if you remember last week, one of the last words that we shared together were these that the Lord would bring us to a place of prayerful dependence, faith-filled obedience, and worshipful proclamation. And I believe that as we spend time with God's word in this book of 12, he could use this word to bring us to a place of prayerful dependence, faith-filled obedience, and worshipful proclamation, a more fully-orbed understanding of who our God is, and what is his gospel. And that really is the root of the study questions that we've written for you there. You can get to it on Church Center as well. That Essentially, those triad questions and CG questions that we're sending you home with are, are who is God and what is his gospel? Who am I in light of this scripture? What does this scripture mean 
for his church. And how ought I to respond to this scripture with my time, talent, and treasure? And this is a pattern that we repeat over and over again when we come to the scriptures. What we'll do this morning is we'll do that by looking at Hosea more closely. And so one of the things that I know is is if, if this was me sitting in the seat where you are, I would be largely unfamiliar. But instead, you've afforded me time to spend in the Word and, and to pay attention there. And so what I want to do is I want to try and, and bring what the Lord has afforded me and hopefully bring all of us together into a greater familiarity with Hosea. And so one of the ways we can do that is by paying attention to the whole of the outline of this relatively long book. You can listen to the whole thing in a long walk in a morning using an an audio app of some kind, but it is a pretty lengthy book. And so just briefly to give us an outline that then we'll walk through uh, a little bit together is Hosea 1, okay? Hosea 1 sets the scene, and we're introduced to, to a few characters, right, as it was read before us? We're introduced to the prophet, Hosea. We're introduced to Gomer, his adulterous wife. And then we're introduced to their three children and what they mean, right? So sort of set the stage. Then by the time we turn to chapter 2, in the first half of chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, we see that the Lord has an accusation and a judgment to lodge, okay? Now he's speaking to Israel and he says, I have an accusation against you. And then in the second half of chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, the Lord promises to work redemption and reconciliation. And and really what we see play out is a renewal of a wedding vow. So the relationship between Hosea and Gomer winds up being played out between the Lord and his people Israel during the course of Hosea. So that by the time we get to Hosea chapter 3, we see the love of the husband. And what we see about the love of the husband is the love of the husband is active and ongoing and sacrificial. So really, that pretty much encapsulates most of the story, most of what needs to be communicated in Hosea. So why does it go on then, all the way from chapter 4 through chapter 14? Well, what happens is the Lord then goes to Hosea and he helps Hosea unpack for him exactly what is the nature of the accusation. So the accusation is not broad against them, what he holds against them and why they're receiving curses rather than blessing. He unpacks exactly what he means. He explains what the passage calls the Lord's controversy with Israel. And what we'll see when we turn to that in just a moment is the controversy is a three-part complaint. That's chapters 4 4 through 13. So now do you know how to read it? I hope that helps. Just even seeing that outline helps you to begin to understand when I'm reading this, what part of the story am I in at present? So that by the time you get to chapter 14, the Lord is prepared to call the people to return to receive the blessing of redemption and reconciliation with himself as he purchases back his bride. So let's go back and let's look at those, that outline for just a moment. Let's go back to Hosea chapter one, the setting of the scene. I hope your Bibles are open with me. We're gonna look at it together. Looking at verse one, we have the Lord coming to Hosea and he is a son And he's in the context of kings, kings of Judah and kings of Israel. 
the time that all of these prophets wrote, surround the destruction and exile of Israel and Judah. So the destruction and exile of the people of God. The people have divided into two kingdoms after the glorious, peaceful, expansive reigns of King David and King Solomon, and then they split. Rehoboam and Jeroboam, as they move forward in the story of two kingdoms now, not one people, but two, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Now, a really important point to just sort of lodge in your mind as we walk our way through all of these 12 prophets is that Jerusalem is in the south. Jerusalem is in Judah. And that's important because that's where the temple is, God's own designated place for worship. And you'll see there is a kind of idolatry that takes place in the north that is directly connected to them not having access to the temple. Now, Hosea was a prophet in that northern kingdom, in Israel, and he's often referred to as the deathbed prophet of Israel because he so immediately preceded the destruction of the kingdom of Israel. So he's speaking, curse is coming. So when he's unpacking the complaint of the Lord, he's unpacking it because they're about to be sentenced in this trial. Often God would not only give the prophet's word to to speak, but he would also lead them in sometimes shocking illustrations. And I think chapter one counts as a shocking illustration to demonstrate what he seeks to communicate to the people. For Hosea, the Lord commanded him to marry a woman who is a known adulterer. Look at verse two. When the Lord first spoke to through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. He wouldn't only marry this woman. He'd start a family with a known adulterer. Now, immediately, immediately, beginning at verse 4, we see this family arriving. We're introduced to the children of what, and what the Lord has to say to Israel through these children that his prophet Hosea is having with Gomer. The first child in verse 4 is Jezreel. We're told that Jezreel is there to communicate that the Lord will put an end to Israel. He'll put an end to her. Judgment. In verse 6, we're introduced to, how about this for a name, if anybody's looking? Now, we've got a lot of new babies showing up here at Cross Point Coast. How about no mercy? All right? Uh, there's one for you. Lo Ruhama. No mercy. The Lord is going to deal with Israel in judgment and not mercy. It's a warning. In verse 9, we're introduced to a third child. Not my people. Not my people. Lo Ami. This is the most severe judgment that the Lord could have pronounced. The Lord is good. The Lord preserves. With the Lord, there is bounty and creativity and wisdom and peace and hope. And his word to the people are not my people. And yet, by the time we get to verse 10, we have what so often happens with the prophets. We're rolling along. We're like, this is horrid. I can't think of worse things that could be said to a people. And yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured 
or numbered. The place where it said to them, you're not my people, it should be said to them, children of the living God. In a jarring fashion, Hosea tells us that somehow, by some miracle of grace, the children of Israel are going to multiply and they're going to be gathered again as one people that are going to be known by one name, and that is the name of the Lord. How in the world is this going to happen after the severity of the judgment that has been pronounced? It's often the pattern of the prophets. It follows the same pattern. Blessing, curses, redemption. The marriage between Hosea and Gomer is a beautiful thing. It is a blessing. The appearance of these children in the world It's beautiful. It's blessing for this new young family. And right into the midst of that blessing, as as Gomer continues in her adultery, the Lord pronounces curse in the names upon the children. The prophets, with both a powerful realism, present the people with their sin and the judgment of God which awaits them. A powerful realism. It's as they pass through this judgment that the Lord will reveal to him his salvation. That's why verse 10 always comes. It's in light of both judgment and salvation, in light of blessing and curse, that the people discover the glory of the Lord and God. This is a pattern that's been observed by a man named James Hamilton in his biblical theology that I would highly recommend to you. The glory of God in salvation through judgment. I just, even before knowing the title of that book, that's the story. That's the story of the scriptures, and it's a story that gets played out over and over again in all 12 of the prophets that we'll look at. The glory of God in salvation, yes, but the salvation comes through judgment. We'll consider this in far more detail in the coming weeks. So this is chapter one. We already pretty much have the story laid out for us. Now the Lord begins to unpack and apply the story to Israel. Hosea chapter two, verses one through three, is the Lord's accusation and his judgment. What's really going on here? Why all this talk of judgment? Look at verse five with me of chapter two. For their mother has played the whore. She has, who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. How is she happy? How is she provided for? How is she satisfied in this world? Well, by going after adulterous lovers, of, of course. So Israel, like, Homer's, like Hosea's wife, Gomer, looked at her wealth And she looked at all that she had and she attributed this bountiful provision to someone other than her husband. And so the Lord decides to hedge up her way. Verse six, therefore I will hedge her up. I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. The places where she thought she went for provision, she can't go there anymore. What does this look like? Well, when Israel makes her idolatrous prayers to Baal and other idols in the region and yet experiences famines and plague, she'll begin to think that the false gods have abandoned her. Lord is hedging her up 
so she can experience what it is to be under the Lord and called back to his provision rather than seeking a false provision in the neighboring nations. You see how this plays out in verse 7. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Verse 8. This is so important. Man, I, I, underline this. Memorize this. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil. It was I who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. The whole time. It wasn't the lovers. It wasn't the other nations or the other gods that were answering her prayers. The Lord saw the needs of the people and he met them. And met them with great abundance, but they never looked to him. They never honored him. They never worshiped him or gave thanks to him, but they ran off after other lovers thinking, oh, this is where I'm satisfied. And so the Lord cuts it off. His bountiful provision of love for his people, he cuts it off. Because at this point, they don't have him. They just have his stuff. Both blessing and curse are from the Lord. Both are for the same purpose, that the people would know the Lord in his goodness. The Lord was showering them with his goodness, but they didn't know him in his goodness. They only knew the stuff and thought it was from somewhere else. So he cuts it off so that they could know him again, return to him, return to the first love because it was better back when we were with him, she says. That they would seek him and find him and remain with him as a covenant husband all their days. Hosea 2.8 is the most important statement in Hosea. The Lord's people fail to acknowledge that it is he who's provided for them all of their days. They're not a people whom they are not a people whom the Lord has called. Listen. The Lord has called and made them a people. Do you see that? They're not a people on their own, precious and important among the nations, but the Lord has called them and made them a people. And he's loved them as his people, and he's kept them by his grace. I would have you consider the heart of idolatry when we misunderstand this. We think that we can be a people apart from the God who has called us and made us, and kept us, and provided good for us. Romans chapter one, verse 21. I would say it's just a parallel to that Hosea 2, 8. For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him because they came futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The heart of idolatry is to fail to acknowledge and honor the Lord who has made us and provided for us. To receive good from the Lord, but to ascribe the good to something else. Creation and humanity did not simply pop into existence as a brute fact. We exist by the creative generosity of the Lord. God is not just creator. It's not enough to simply be satisfied with some sort of, sort of a 
biblical doctrine of creation. Because he's not just creator. By his creative act, he reveals himself to be generous creator. That which wasn't is by his blessing. That's you and me, by the way. That which wasn't is because he's generous, creative, but we've become futile in our mind, foolish in our heart, and we deny this, not only to deny the reality, but to fail to honor the Lord with gratitude. God, I exist. Wow. How kind. God, I still exist. Now compare this with the worship of heaven. The worship of heaven knows, gets it right. Revelation chapter four, verses nine through 11. And whenever the living creatures give glory, creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast down their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory. Let's see your honor and power. You created all things. By your will they existed, and they were created worthy. There is one who is worthy of the thanks and honor for the goodness that he is and that he has done. The Lord is worthy. He's generous creator and provider of all life. To be redeemed is to be brought back into this right relationship with the Lord. That finally, once again, we honor him as the God and creator that he is. Honor him, not simply acknowledge him. Honor him. Give thanks to him. Depend upon him. Friends, that's called faith. Enter into a relationship of faith with him. Worship really is probably the greatest name of that result. A people of faith or a people of worship. This is the first half of chapter two. The second half of chapter two, Hosea two, beginning at verse 14 through 23, the Lord promises to work redemption and reconciliation. He promises he will. Look at verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure Bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. What powerful words. What's the Lord's desire for Israel? Verse 16, that Israel would would turn to him and say, Ha ha, my husband, you've allured me and reminded me that you were always my husband. You were always the one that that called us into this covenant relationship to begin with and has grown us to be a people with a family under all of your generous provision, my husband, Israel should say. Look at verses 19 and 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. Who's he talking to? He's talking to his wife. These are things that a husband shouldn't have to say to a wife. But if you read chapter one, you see why. And if you've paid attention to our history, you see why. But uh, this husband says to his wife, I will betroth you to me forever. 
I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And the Lord calls Israel to himself, and he says, you're, you're mine. It's almost a, you're mine, deal with it. <laughs> I'm good, and you will have my goodness. Deal with it. So by the time we get to the end of 23, I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, oh, you, you are my God. This is where history is going. Revelation 21.3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and he will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And they'll know it. And they'll love it forever to be provided for by this generous God and to dwell in his house forever. A restored relationship between the Lord and his people means the Lord is God. We are his people. The Lord is my husband. And he has betrothed me to himself. This is what right relationship with the Lord means. I want you to note what I titled this section of the scripture. I hope this is instructive. The Lord promises to work redemption and reconciliation. He promises to work it. He promises to do it. He doesn't promise that it's available if you'd like it. He promises, you belong to me. I betroth you to me. And with blessings and curses, I will give to you my goodness. The work of redemption and reconciliation is the work of the Lord. It's the Lord who called Israel to himself in the first place. It's the Lord who provided for her, made her a people. It's the Lord who warned her and judged her in her sin, causing her to acknowledge him again. And it's the Lord who draws close to her again with righteousness and justice and steadfast love and his mercy. And he wins her as he allures her. And you shall know the Lord. By the time we get to chapter 3, what we have being described is the love of a husband for his wife. The active, ongoing, sacrificial love of a husband. Look at verse 1. And the Lord said to me, what are those next words? He said to Hosea, go again. Let's go to what? Love a woman who is loved by another man, and is adulterous, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, who go after other gods and love cakes of raisins. Go again. This is one of the most important phrases for us to understand about the love of the Lord. The love of the Lord goes again. The redemptive love of the Lord moves toward those who belong to him. One of the most important things that we can get from this time in these 12 books of Scripture is to come to know the character of our God. And the Lord God is the God who goes again. That is, the love of God is active. Because of the waywardness of his wife, Hosea repeatedly has to go and get her, and it's the Lord who moves toward his people. And his love is ongoing. Even when love of the wife fails, Hosea loves continually. Ongoing. 
And his love is sacrificial. He literally, in this passage, in chapter 3, has to purchase his wife back from idolatrous lovers. Imagine. Shouldn't be too hard for us to imagine what it is to be redeemed from a world that we never belonged to in the first place. To be purchased back from the prince of the power of the air, redeemed by lavish and abundant grace. Look at verse five. After the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. They'll come in fear to the goodness of the Lord. We're not used to talking about words like that, like that. I think it is because we do not have a right biblical background for salvation. So much of the New Testament doesn't really make sense until you understand the coming together of these things that the author, uh, the, the, the prophets just don't have any problem putting in the same sentence. It's at the heart of our waywardness that we've denied the goodness of the Lord. See, the Lord has been good. He has been generous even that we exist, let alone that we're abundantly provided for. The Lord has already been good. We've seen the Lord and we've seen his way. And it's when the Lord was good to us that we have turned aside to our own ways and to the ways of the world. Do you see? How could the Lord who is good win us back? Who has already been good? But he says, let me show you what it's like if that fount is turned off. In my goodness, Toward you, let me show you what it's like to be loved by the world. At times, it's as though the trials we experience in life, when, when the Lord thwarts, and attempts, thwarts our attempts at happiness in this world, that we're driven back to him. He says, no. Go ahead. Have the world. Give it a whirl. See how it works. And we say, it doesn't. After a season of suffering, we come in fear. And we come in suffering back to the Lord. And we say, I think I know what was true all along. It was you, wasn't it? You were good to me. And you showed me what it would like, be like to live on my own in this world, seeking satisfaction in the idols of this world. Thank you, God, for teaching my heart fear. I don't want to be anywhere else but with you and your house and your goodness. We find that the Lord has been good, and he was always good. He never stopped being good, whether it be blessing or curse. The Lord was good. Where's Christ in Hosea? Man, I think he's right here. He's right here. First of all, he's the Lord. He is the Lord who is good, the maker of all things, the one who calls a people to himself by which they are redeemed, the forbearance of the Lord all this time awaiting the cross and resurrection, right? But here's this phrase from John chapter 13, verse 1. It's one of my favorite phrases in the Gospel of John. It says this, Having loved his own, Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, speaking of his disciples, he loved them to the end. He never stopped his goodness toward them, whether they abandoned him, denied him, crucified him, didn't believe him, struggled with the reality of the resurrection until he proved himself to them and sent them with his blessing. He loved them to the cross. 
So what remains of the book of Hosea? Honestly, I think it's some things that would, we would do well to spend some time with in, uh, at home by and large, but I would give you just a little orientation so you can spend time there around your meal tables and so on. Hosea 4 through 13 is the Lord's controversy with Israel. In verse 1, you have it all right there. Verse 1 of chapter 4 is a summary of all that remains. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There it is. No faithfulness, no steadfast love, no knowledge of God. You remember Hosea and Gomer's children? Do you remember the names? Jezreel. The Lord will put an end to Israel. It sounds like the Lord's faithfulness has come to an end. Verse 6, no mercy. The Lord is going to deal with Israel in judgment and not mercy. And in verse 9 of chapter 1, it says that her name was not my people. The Lord will finally reject the people. And what he does is he says, this is what I could do to you. But let's be clear, this is what you've done to me. This is what you've done in our covenant relationship. It's an explicit threat. Israel, do you see how you've treated the Lord? What if the Lord would treat you in kind? And we'll see the Lord is not like the people. He is faithful. He is abundant in steadfast love. He does not abandon the covenant that he's made with them. What follows is an explicit unpacking of the Lord's case against Israel. I'll just tell you what it is. Hosea 4 and 5, an accusation that the people have walked with no knowledge of God. In chapter 4, verse 7, it says, The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. Hosea 6 through 11, no steadfast love. Hosea 6 opens with a fascinating account. It appears that the people are going to be turning back to the Lord. But in verse 2, they think, surely the Lord is going to revive us if we just go back to him. But the fact is, they aren't actually going back to the Lord. They're just saying, can you give us the stuff back, please? They're not actually going back to him. They make expressions of return. They make expressions of love and a variety of worship sacrifices, but the love is not steadfast, and he has this accusation against them. And then Hosea 12 and 13, no faithfulness. Hosea 12 and 13, no faithfulness. The people know the Lord. They were created by him. The Lord provided for them, but they've forgotten the Lord, and they've walked without faith-filled dependence upon him. So the by the time, in that outline, we get to Hosea chapter 14. We have the Lord's call to return. Look at verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you've stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say things like, take away our iniquity. Verse three, Assyria shall not save us, you should say. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. Friends, that is one of the best statements of faith I've ever heard. God, there are things where we've gone before and we confess there's no hope in those other things. I've gone my own way, and I've found that there, there is only death. And so I turn to you because, well, the fact is, orphans like me find mercy in you. 
What do you get? Mercy. Redemption. Friends, that is reconciliation. Now, there are ways that the Lord has blessed you, okay, practically and functionally right now. Are there ways that the Lord has blessed you, but you've even taken these things for granted or you've treated them, the gifts, like idols that you should seek your power, your approval, your comfort and control in? Are there blessings? Because the Lord is good. He's been good to you. Are there ways that the Lord has blessed you that you have not honored him, but you've rather honored the ways of the world? The fact is, Gomer, she's us. We are among those who have been called by the name of the Lord, his possession forever. We've been grafted in by the grace of Jesus Christ into the salvation that was promised long ago. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Have we who belong to the Lord forgotten his goodness and so begun to look to the world as our provider of happiness, of hope. Throughout history, the Lord has called the people back to himself. And Jesus himself is the pinnacle of that redemption. That is why he's the fulfillment of all of these prophets who came before. That's why Ephesians chapter five, verse 25, actually makes sense. It turns out Ephesians chapter five is not about the marriage of a husband and a wife. It says, husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Man, that's about Jesus. It turns out the marriage isn't a handy metaphor for Christ and the church. Jesus' love of the church is the model for marriage, if anything. Jesus has loved us, and he's loved us to the very end. May we see in Jesus this morning the active, ongoing, sacrificial love of a husband. And whether you right now would say you are in a season of blessing or a season of curse, a season of great abundance or a season of trial, turn to the Lord. Because this is a season for faith. This is a season to trust in the Lord, to be independent upon the one who rescues orphans like you and me.